Well, we are in the time and season of Advent. And I don't know why, but I feel like in this moment, I just, I just love you guys. I just want to tell you I love you guys a lot. I'm grateful to be your pastor. It's hard to believe that I get to do this. And I'm just really grateful. I don't, yeah, I don't know how it happens, um, but I'm just grateful. So thank you. Um, I love you guys. So we're starting, we're starting a new series. Uh, it's Advent, and Advent is a very old it's a very old chapter in, in, uh, in, uh, in the, the life of the church, and uh, it's the season of, of waiting. Advent just means, uh, it means arrival, and uh, we're in the season after an advent and waiting on the second advent, and this season is where we commemorate future-looking. So we recognize this, the first advent, Jesus Christ has come, he's taken on flesh, he died for us, and we're waiting on him to come back, to bring us back to himself, to make us whole, to restore our relationships. And I want this one, this, this season for us to focus on, I'm calling the series, Waiting on a Son. I want us to focus on Jesus and the foreshadows of Jesus, the ways that the Old Testament has trained us to wait on a son. So to do this, let's, let's just ask a couple of diagnostic questions, okay? Because we're going to look at Abraham today and see how the Old Testament teaches us to wait, wait on a priestly king. So how many, how many of you, how many, how many ways have you guys tried to dig yourself out, out of the problems that you've created? You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm sure there are many people who have, who have created problems for themselves and then tried to dig themselves out of those problems. And then how many more of you, when you're caught, right, uh, just stack kind of more of your fixes on top until then that whole thing collapses onto you and crushes you. Or maybe you're not the person who kind of runs away from what you've done, but you're the person who kind of endlessly is working to try to make things right. You're the one who, maybe you're not running away from your problems, maybe you're not lying to kind of build this facade, but you're just always striving to fix things. And in the end, you're, you're, maybe you're just kind of waiting for Maybe if time passes long enough, then time heals all wounds. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Advent, again, is this season of, of waiting, and, and part of Advent captures that longing feeling, waiting for time to heal wounds. Uh, Advent is, is a, of course, an exciting time. It certainly has this air of we're excited that Jesus has come. We're excited that we're going to get to see Jesus again. But it also captures that I really need this to get better feeling. So this Advent series, again, is called Waiting on a Son because the Bible anticipates the supernatural provision of a son, supernatural provision of the son who will be a true prophet, priest, and king. And what's remarkable is in the Old Testament, there are five barren women who are given supernaturally a son. And each of those sons grows up to function in some ways a leader in Israel, either as a type of a king, someone who is a deliverer, or someone who functions as a prophet. So we're going to do biblical theology this Advent, which means that we won't focus on just like, like we've done with Exodus. We go verse by verse. We are going to do that, but instead of looking at like 12 verses, we're going to take a 30,000-foot view, and we're going to look at like four chapters and then skip over a couple of places. See, how did the Apostle Paul read Genesis 17? How did the Apostle Paul read Genesis 22? How did he read Genesis chapter 25? That's biblical theology, looking at how the big picture fits together. So our question today is, how do the Old Testament pictures of these kings, these prophets, these priests, foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And how does the Old Testament teach us to wait on a son? That's the question. How does the Old Testament teach us to wait on a son? Because God has promised in the life of Abraham, sons and grandsons, Abraham tries to fix God's promise by rushing the timing because Abraham doesn't want to wait. He gets a promise in chapter 15, and by chapter 17, he's already trying to get a son because one hasn't come fast enough, and he ruins three people's lives in the process, including himself. We'll also see God's kindness in not abandoning his promise, giving Isaac, and then giving Jacob to Isaac, keeping his promise, and then ultimately showing us giving the Lord Jesus Christ supernaturally. My guess is that each of us is not that different than Abraham, and that we've all tried to fix problems that we've made. We've created problems, we try to fix them. We probably struggle with patience and trust at times. Maybe not you, but I certainly have. And then left to our own devices, our impatience with God's timing and our trying to fix God's timing has probably made things worse. But God, I hope we'll see today, God, however, in spite of our meddling, in spite of our counterproductive efforts, he still is kind and gives a son to Abraham, culminating in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it look like to have confidence that God will do that? And what does it look like to have confidence that he will right the wrongs that we've made? The confidence that God will fix the problems we've, we've made is found in Jesus, that Jesus came in his first advent not to judge us, but to save us. But in his second advent, he will come to judge. Jesus is a gracious king whose law is mercy and scepter is justice. We read about in Isaiah 9. And he is the gift of God to the world. He is the king that God promised to Abraham. And through the transforming power of the gospel, even the power of advent, his first appearing, right? We're to embrace this king and then give up our pretenses that we can fix our own problems because we can't. We just can't fix our problems. We need somebody outside of ourselves to fix our problems. So first, we need to see our need for a king. When you see we have a need for a king. The Gospel of Matthew, you don't have to turn there. We're going to spend most of our time, like I said, in the book of Genesis, from Genesis 17 to Genesis 25, and we'll hop to the Old Testament, uh, excuse me, the New Testament a couple times. But the Gospel of Matthew opens with a really striking statement. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says, The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's a really weird genealogy when you think about it. Because ordinarily when somebody says, I'm the son of somebody, you don't reach back 14 generations to say, I'm the son of this person. Anybody doing that? Anybody? I'm the, I'm the, I'm the son of Jedediah Carter from the 1700, you know, 1700s. Nobody's doing that. So what is Matthew hoping that we'll learn from this passage? That's the question I have. Even by biblical genealogy standards, this is still a really weird way to open a book of genealogies, right? Because ordinarily we'd see a, na- a man named, his father named, and then his grandfather named. We wouldn't see his great, 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 to the nth degree grandfather named. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus Christ is a long-expected king from Abraham's line. Why? Why does Matthew want to do that. We'll turn to Genesis 17. Like I said, we're going to do a lot of biblical theology today, so we're going to be in an airplane 30,000 feet above, uh, above, the, above the Bible. We won't do Bible drills, so I won't just uh, chop you around, but we're going to be in this zone, and again, going back to Romans and Galatians generally. But in 
Genesis chapter 17, God makes an unbreakable promise. He makes a covenant with Abraham that he will bless the nations and Abraham will produce kings. If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 17, 4 through 7. Behold, my covenant is with you, Abraham, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer will your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offsprings after you. So God's telling Abraham a couple of really remarkable things. I didn't grow up in, a, you know, in, uh, in the same uh, church uh, that you guys did. We sang Book of Mormon stories, not Father Abraham. So I didn't learn that song until I was like 20. But uh, Father Abraham did have many sons and many sons did have Father Abraham. And uh, we're one of them because of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And, but specifically, I want to call your attention to verse 6. Kings will come from you. And for emphasis, the Lord wants to make this explicit that it's going to be him that does this. He clarifies the promise is going to come through his barren wife, his infertile wife. Genesis 17, hop down to verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife... You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. This is an infertile woman who's unable to have children. And to clarify that God is being very specific with how this promise is going to come to pass, he says it again. It's going to be through you, Abraham. You're very old. It's not likely by human standards you're going to have a child. He does have one, right, through illicit means. But by worldly standards, it's not, it wouldn't be likely. But then certainly not through Sarai would this be expected. But specifically, it's through her that this blessing is going to come. It's through this woman. Why did, why did God promise a king to Abraham? God promised a king because Adam failed in his rule. The entire reason that Matthew opens up with this genealogy, Matthew chapter one is a genealogy, and it goes on, is for the same reason that genealogies are so important in the Old Testament. Genealogies are important in the Old Testament because they show that God is being faithful to his promise. Lord willing, next year you're gonna start a yearly Bible reading plan. I know some of the, the, uh, the women uh, in our church are going to be doing a daily Bible reading plan. We've got some on the way from Crossway. And uh, you'll, you'll start it, and then you might get weary in Genesis 10. That's when you hit the first brick wall of names, okay? But then the real brick wall is Numbers 26. That is when it's the slog, right? And you're dipping out because you're thinking, who cares I know you love the Word of God. It's inspired, and you know that. I know that you love it in your heart, but you're reading Numbers 26. You're like, this is hard. This is What in the world does this have for my faith? I hope you'll see, by reason of the Holy Spirit, the reason that God inspired these verses is because, again, they show God's promise to give a child. Remember, everybody in the Bible is waiting on a baby. And why are they waiting on a baby? Because Genesis 3.15, very important verse, it's the first gospel. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that offspring, will bruise your head, will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. 
God in the garden speaks a curse over the serpent and says, the woman who you have deceived will, will bear a son who will ultimately destroy you. So everybody's waiting on the baby to figure out who is the baby that we're talking about here. Lamech thinks it might be Noah. So he names him Noah because, as the Bible says, he might be the one who gives us rest. And it's not, uh, Noah sounds like cessation of work, right? It's not the same as Sabbath, but it's like we, maybe he'll give us relief from work. But Noah ultimately is not the one who is the promised son. Everybody's waiting on this baby. Each of these genealogies shows us that God is faithful to give offspring to a people who shouldn't, uh, thinking biologically speaking, have children. Generally speaking, people who are infertile can't have children. This has happened six times in human history. Uh, seven times, excuse me. The last one was uh, Mary, who should not have, biologically speaking, been able to have a child. And yet God is showing that he is supernaturally providing children to fulfill his promise. Each, again, of these genealogies shows how he's being faithful, and they each look forward to waiting on the son who's going to be the one to crush the serpent's head. And why, why is this curse given? Because Adam failed, ultimately, in exercising dominion, a kingly work. What was, you guys know this, what was Adam supposed to do in the garden? To work and keep it, to exercise dominion. But does he do that? He does not. He lets a serpent into the garden, and it wrecks everything, because he doesn't exercise his rule. He's not a good type of a king. The Bible doesn't call him a king, and the Bible doesn't even call Abraham a king. But he's doing kingly things like ruling a domain and making sure that it's fruitful, that it multiplies, that it's safe, that it's holy, and mainly that he's protecting Eve from this evil. But he fails. And so instead of using his creative powers, he neglects them. And our creative intent that God had for us isn't lost. The same thing that God intended for us in the garden, we still have. We're still remarkably creative. We still have the ability to use leadership outside of the garden. But apart from Christ, our leadership can get demented. It can get twisted and, and turn to where we're, instead of using our leadership to cause the flourishing of other people, we begin to exploit them. Anybody ever worked for bad leaders before? Right? So we're, instead of bringing about fruitfulness by exercising godly dominion. We're exploiting people, right, for ungodly gain, and we're creating domains for destruction. So God gives a king who will destroy that rebellion and subdue it. You think about Christ's kingship. Think about how he did this, how he is the true and better Adam, like Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians. He takes a donkey instead of a steed. He has a towel and basin instead of a sword. And then he has a cross before he has the crown. We even know in our hearts, our hearts cry out for a king every time we say, God, when will you make this right? Who will fix this problem? So we have to be honest about something before we can even get to the point of like, who's going to help us? And the, the thing we got to be honest about is that we have to admit that we are really terrible at picking kings. Not just because we're American and we have like antibodies to kings, Okay. We're really bad at picking kings of our hearts. Because there's a limitation to our human effort. Right after, look in, look in verse uh, 16 again of chapter 17. Right after God gives this promise and clarifies it's going to come through Sarah, 
Abraham doesn't say, thank you, Lord. What was he saying in verse 18? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. If you're not familiar with the Bible, who is this guy? Who's Ishmael? Why in the world is he being mentioned here? Why is Abraham bringing him up? Remember that just prior to this promise, Abraham had gotten a little impatient with the promise that God had given in Genesis chapter 15. And he took his wife's suggestion to try to produce a child through their own efforts. But how does that end? You know, we love to have our kids help, help in the kitchen. It's a lot of fun, but it almost always makes more work for us, right? There's a little kid's show called Bluey. It's on, on repeat at our house all the time. There's a, a good episode called Omelet. And uh, the, the true ones know what I'm talking about with omelet. And uh, the, the, the daughter is helping make an omelet. They're making breakfast. Things are going wrong all over the place. Dad is getting an omelet, and I can't even remember the reason why. I just kind of zone it out. But anyways, there's an omelet being made, and the youngest, the youngest daughter, Bingo, is just making a mess of everything. She's doing her, she's doing her very best but everything is going wrong. There's eggs everywhere. The orange juice is on the floor everywhere. There are shells inside of the omelet. And the parents learn to love it because they love their kids. Right? But that's not an example of how us trying to solve a problem uh, creates more work. That's a really cute example. But we are generally terrible at solving our own problems. We can't seem to shake old sin patterns. We can't seem to figure out how to muscle our way out of a situation. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a situation where I'm like, if I just work harder, I will fix this for myself. We always require outside intervention in sanctification, a friend to help, a family member to point out. But ultimately, we require the outside intervention of God himself, the Holy Spirit in our heart, to give us a new heart to heal and restore what we've broken. Abraham wrecks in this action with, uh, with, uh, with the concubine uh, Hagar. He wrecks two women's lives and sets into motion a historical con- uh, conflict which is still in the headlines today through his help. This isn't an episode of Bluey with Omelette. He has wrecked things because of his help. And what is God's response to Abraham's plea in verse 18? Look in verse 19. He clarifies, no. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son and shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. That's really important. God clarifies, Abraham, you cannot work your way out of this. I will be the one to do this through your wife, Sarah, who can't have kids. Because the truth is we choose terrible substitutes for kings. We're bad at picking kings and we're bad at substituting kings. Isaiah points out the insanity of our hearts. We will rarely stop to consider how bad our hearts are at picking kings, things to love and give our affections to. Isaiah 44, 19, I love the way the New Living Translation translates this. Listen to, listen to Isaiah 44, 19. The person who made the idol, king, whatever you want to substitute there, the person that made the idol never stops to reflect why? It's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat, and I used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest be a god? Should I bow down to a piece of wood? How are we bowing down, though, in our lives to the king of money in our heart? Or bowing down to the king of our house? 
whatever that is, whether it's having a beautiful house, whether it's having a clean house or house for whatever purposes, how are we bowing down to the house? How might it be the king, right? Or are we bowing down to even our, maybe our neighbor's opinion of us? Is our neighbor the king of our heart, the one that we want to please? Guys, blocks of wood make terrible masters, make terrible masters. But then we'll see, third, that God trains his people. God trains his people to look for a true, th- a true king which will be supernaturally provided. We're not going to be able to make this king. We're not going to be able to work our way out of this problem. God is showing us through the Old Testament, through these patterns, that there's going to be a supernatural king that's given. The Apostle Paul helps us understand precisely why Abraham had to wait on this and why Abraham himself couldn't get himself out of this. He had to wait on God's work. Romans 4, 16 through 17, listen to the word of God. 16 says, That is why the promise depends on faith in order that the promise might rest on grace and be guaranteed to all offspring, not only the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. If we thought about Sarah's abilities to bring about a child according to natural ends, we would say it's impossible. Her womb, so to speak, is dead. So to speak, right, of course. Meaning that no life grows there. And that's the point. God used what was typologically dead, a, a, a barren womb, to bring forth life, a promised child, to teach us that deliverance is God's action. That God is the one who brings about salvation. That we can't work it out of ourselves on our own. It's grace, not works. Again, there are five supernatural conceptions in the Old Testament. Let me run through them real quick to show you that God is making this picture very big and very clear for us that we're going to have to wait on a son. The first one is right here, Sarah, Genesis 17 through 18 and 21. Again, God promises to uh, Abraham and Sarah that a son is going to come through their line, even though she's barren. The promise is reaffirmed when angels show up at their tent Genesis chapter 18, and say, this is really happening, guys. And what happens? She laughs. She's like, there's no way it's happening. And God's still faithful even in her lack of faith. Isaac is born as a fulfillment of those promises. Again, Isaac's not called a king, but he leads like a king. He does things like a king, and ultimately he becomes the father of kings. Then who's Isaac marry, right? His story is very complicated, more complicated we get in here. But Rebecca is, you know, one of his wives. And while not directly involving an angelic intervention, Rebecca is barren. Isaac prays to the Lord on behalf of Rebecca, who was barren. And God answers her prayer, not with one child, but two, ch- two children. She gives birth to twins, Esau and Jacob. And the promise goes through Jacob. And Jacob has a wife who is Aaron. We're seeing a pattern here. All of the, all of the leaders of, of Israel, this is the pattern because it's God who does this work, not men. Genesis 30, she's barren for a long time while her sister Leah keeps having kids. God remembers Rachel and what does the text say? He hears her and he opens her womb and who does he give to her? He gives her Joseph and then later Benjamin through whom the latter, right? Uh, uh, ultimately, she, she perishes during uh, Benjamin's birth, gives birth to Joseph, who we've already talked about 
Who does God send to prepare the way for his people so they can live in Egypt? Joseph, right? We then have Samson's mother. This one blew me away, guys. Another one, Judges 13. Just like Genesis 18, an angel Lord appears to Manoah's wife who was barren and tells her that she will bear a son who will be like a priest. He will take the Nazarite vow and he will be like a priest. It will deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. That son is Samson. And then lastly, Hannah. Hannah, who's deeply distressed by her barrenness, prays to the Lord of the temple in Shiloh. There's no angelic visitation, but God answers her prayer. And then he gives her Samuel, who is one of the preeminent prophets in Israel's history. In each of these conceptions, God is teaching his people to anticipate the supernatural conception of a king, that God is going to do something miraculous through death to bring about life. And we know that's how they read it and how it was intended to read because in Romans chapter 4, Paul says he speaks into, into existence what is not into existence. He brings about from death life. Samuel Bolton, a Puritan preacher, he reminds us God's promises never, uh, excuse me, are never nearer fulfilling than when they seem and reason furthest from fulfilling. God's promises are always close to coming true when they almost seem that they're not. How does he answer these? these uh, again, we've kind of run through them a little bit, but Genesis 21. Even though Abraham, verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old, Isaac is born to him. And that lineage continues through Isaac and Jacob. Genesis, I'll just read this. You don't have to turn there. Genesis 25, Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord granted her prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Through Rebekah, God gives Jacob uh, a, 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 a child, Right? There's a lot more there, but for time's sake, I won't, I won't go in that too much. But in each of these situations, notice that God's providence provides salvation in spite of these people's actions. God is faithful to his promise even when we're not faithful to him because his grace rests not on us doing good enough to earn it, but on the fact that he gives it freely. So what does it look like to embrace this kingship of Jesus? Again, one of the reasons that Moses, excuse me, that Matthew and Luke opened the Gospels is because everyone is waiting on this promised king. You remember, it's part of what frustrates even the Jewish people of Jesus' day, that he isn't waging war on the Romans like they thought he would. They're waiting on a king, but he's not the king that they expected, but he's the king that they needed. Even Mark, who doesn't include a genealogy, opens with a heralding announcement of the kingdom of heaven. But two moments stand out to clarify exactly who Jesus is as a supernaturally given king. We've already read one of them. Luke 1, 30 through 35, I'll call your attention to 34. Mary answers the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Right? She's not barren technically, but biologically speaking. This is a supernatural conception we've been trained to wait for. The angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. But what about this child? Go back up now to verse 32. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will what? Reign over the house of Jacob forever. The king promised to Abraham is Jesus. 
Luke 1, 32. So let's see, he's the, he's the king promised Israel. Then Luke 1, 34, Jesus is going to be given to a woman who would not ordinarily be able to have a baby. And so Jesus is the direct, supernaturally given gift from God. Jesus really is, Matthew 1, 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What does it mean that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, not just the king, but the offspring of Abraham? Paul clarifies exactly what this means and exactly how the blessing of, of Christ is exclusively found in Jesus. We've seen how God works in spite of our efforts. So he's still faithful even when Abraham's not. He's still faithful when we're not. The blessing of Abraham has always been about God's purpose and not our expectations. So it was through Isaac and not Ishmael because we can't force the hand of God through our schemes. And it was through Jacob and not Esau because God's grace is a gift, not a birthright. And similarly, Jesus is the fount of all of God's blessings because he is the content of those blessings. What is the blessing of God? It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Hear Paul in Galatians 3.16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Jesus Jesus is the long-awaited son. Jesus is the long-awaited son from Abraham's line through whom God would bless the nations. Why is the gospel exclusive? Why is Jesus so special? Why must everyone bow the knee at Jesus? It's because he's the promised son of God. He's the one promised who would deliver his people, who would establish a kingdom in our hearts. And what's this king's reign like as we close? Isaiah pulls back the curtain and shows Abraham's sonship. It's merciful. Listen to what this king's government sounds like. The government's on his shoulders, Isaiah says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How do you enter this King Jesus kingdom? It's a simple invitation that Jesus gives. He's teaching in Matthew chapter 18. He just says, if you're weary and heavy laden, this is the kingdom for you. Come to me. Who gets to enter? Who gets to enter? Paul, excuse me, Peter preaches, Acts 2, anybody who's repentant, and every one of you who is baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the Holy Spirit, verse 39, listen, this is a direct call back to Genesis 17. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Advent is an opportune time to see again, perhaps for the first time, that you cannot work your way out of your own problems. And you cannot crown a king over your own hearts who will save you from your heart. There is one true king, and his name is Jesus. And his announcement is he's come in his first advent to save, not judge, to save. But he, he will be coming again to judge. And so the call is to repent and believe in this king, to enter his kingdom by faith, by grace, to enter his kingdom, because as the word of God says, his kingdom is at hand. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray as we 
move into the time of the supper that we would think in our hearts and reflect, are we believing in the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we receiving by faith the promises made through Abraham resulting in and fulfillment in Christ? God, if we have not made our peace with this king, help us, Lord, to do that. Your word in 2 Corinthians 6 says, today is the day of salvation. Lord, I pray you would draw someone to yourself even today. And as we move now to the time of the supper, help us to see you're the king that gives his life for his people, Lord. So we celebrate you for that. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.